Welcome back to Dictatorum, episode 1.9, The Regime Unravels. In our previous episode, we saw how the end of the Lockerbie Affair, 9-11, and the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan led to massive changes in Libyan foreign policy. Improved relations with the United Kingdom and America led to Libya eventually dropping its chemical and nuclear weapons programs. This in turn led to the cessation of sanctions, which eventually opened Libya's economy. That started to bring about massive socio-economic changes to Libya. Businesses started to be born and grow, and Libya was gradually being welcomed back onto the world stage. Attempts at reform, though, were often quashed, and this lack of willingness to even provide Libya a constitution meant the population was angry and tired of the repression. In this episode, we'll see that all these changes resulted in the ultimate downfall of the Gaddafi regime. On 17 February 2006, 14 citizens of the eastern Libyan city of Benghazi were killed after a spontaneous riot erupted there. Controversial cartoon depictions of the Prophet Muhammad were published in a Danish newspaper, and after an Italian politician promised to print those depictions on t-shirts for sale, the Benghazi citizens started protesting. The demonstration soon got out of hand, and the security services were called in to put down the mob. As is wont to happen when protests turn into riots, the authorities used a heavy hand. By the end of the day, at least 14 protesters were killed, and many more were injured. Although Libya was undergoing the massive changes we described in the previous episode, the regime couldn't exactly tolerate such brazen defiance. The day became a watershed moment in Cyrenaica, which had long suffered under the Gaddafi regime. Five years later, a lawyer from Benghazi who represented the families of the Abu Slim prison massacre, Fatih Terbil, planned a commemorative day of rage to mark five years since the 17 February incident and to demand more reforms in a constitution. Although planned to be peaceful, the regime wasn't keen to put up with such a demonstration, and so they arrested Turbil on the afternoon of 15 February, two days before the Day of Rage. The Gaddafi regime was convinced, though, that it had to stop the Day of Rage before it got out of hand. This one arrest would knock down the first domino in a line that would topple Gaddafi and his people's revolution. The reason the regime was keen to stop the protest was because tensions in the Middle East were high. In January 2011, nearly a month before Turbil's planned Day of Rage, a Tunisian shopkeeper had set himself alight in downtown Tunis in an effort to bring about reform to his country. This act of self-immolation spurned others into the streets, and Tunisians soon started mass demonstrations that resulted in the overthrow of the long-serving Tunisian president Ben Ali. Soon after that, Egyptians rose up in revolt against their longtime ruler, Hosni Mubarak. The Egyptian security services couldn't quell the protests that started in Cairo's Tahrir Square, and soon Mubarak was deposed and arrested. This was the start of the Arab Spring, which would continue to spread across the Arab world. Major demonstrations started in Syria, Yemen, and Bahrain, and minor demonstrations took place in a host of other predominantly Arab nations. In protest to the immense housing shortage facing everyday Libyans, normal people started occupying the half-finished apartment blocks that were routinely left unfinished 
or which were completed and left sitting empty. The regime was able to eventually handle these small, localized demonstrations pretty easily, but 21st century Libya was seeing more and more of these small-scale protests. Gaddafi's regime could only accept so much disobedience, and after Tunisia and Egypt erupted into the Arab Spring, the brother leader felt like he had to do something to stop these upstarts. The man who had championed the people's rights for 40-plus years was now at odds with them. The Woody Colonel met the, with the residents to hear out their grievances on a host of issues in February of 2011. He invited the families of the victims of the massacre in Tripoli, branched them with medals, he discussed raising salaries, and he redoubled his efforts to court tribal leaders. While he promised reform, this wasn't anything new to a country that had lived in quote-unquote eternal revolution since the late 60s. And who knew if the brother leader was just going to change his mind in a week, as he'd been known to do. So, Gaddafi did what any strong man would do. He turned to intimidation tactics. He posted military and state security leaders in Benghazi, including his son Saudi, who wasn't particularly popular in that city. You see, in the year 2000, some football fans started calling him names, so he bulldozed their football stadium. The regime arrested the lawyer Turbil two days before the planned protests. Gaddafi even had counter-protests planned to blunt the effects of the Day of Reich. But the next day, the families that Turbil represented showed up at the local security director office demanding his release. A Benghazi-based journalist at the incident gave an interview with Al Jazeera's news about what was happening, during which time he was chased down by security agents and arrested. The regime relented and released Turbil, but he was called back to the security directorate on 17 February. The people had their first victory, and on the day of rage, protests were held across all major locations in the city. Soon, fires were started, and the old Libyan flag, with its three colored bands and a crescent moon, was seen in the hands of the protesters. Gaddafi hit back hard. The security services opened fire on the protesters. At least 21 were killed, and scores were wounded. Surprisingly, though, the protests carried on, and the next day, the protests ramped back up. Police and Revolutionary Committee offices were put to the torch by the protesters. Security forces once again opened fire, but on the funerals of the people killed the previous day, increasing the amount of bloodshed. But instead of cowing the protesters, it seemed to bring out even more people. Other towns and villages in Cyrenaica soon had protests of their own, and the government was forced to try and respond by cutting off electricity, phones, and internet service. But this didn't really matter. By 19 February, protests spread to Libya's far western city of Al-Zawiya, to the major city of Misrata located to the east of Tripoli, and even in Tripoli itself. The protests in Tripoli were easily broken up, but this was a terrible sign for Gaddafi. Within just a few days, most of the cities in Cyrenaica had fallen to the protesters, who were starting to arm themselves by raiding police stations and security service offices. Most of those in the police and security services either fled or joined the protesters. Saadi Gaddafi was briefly held under siege in a hotel in Benghazi before security force personnel whisked him out of town. Gaddafi pulled his forces back to Tripoli to re-establish some cohesion and come up with an actual plan. He claimed to the press that this was the work of crazed Islamists from a known hotbed of Islamic extremism, 
In reality, it was an uprising by the most neglected part of the country, which still had memories of Libya before Gaddafi. The Libyan Revolution had begun. In Tunisia and Egypt, the army had played pivotal roles in the Arab Spring by turning against the regime and siding with the people. Libya would be different, mostly because the army was a paper tiger. Although it was large, and in spite of the billions that the leader had spent on weapons since the start of his reign, it was quite ineffective, as the war with Chad in the 1980s had shown. The Libyan security forces, on the other hand, were the real hammer of the regime, and were loyal to Gaddafi. Several of the brother leader's sons commanded security service units, and others were led by relatives or tribal leaders who owed their positions to Gaddafi alone. But not everyone wanted to stick with Gaddafi's program. There were some defections early on, the most important of which was General Abdel Fattah Yunus al-Obeidi, a longtime Gaddafi loyalist who at the time was public security secretary. His defection gave the new opposition something they sorely lacked, legitimacy. They now had an honest-to-God regime insider on their side. The protests kept going on, and by late February, the demonstrators, many of whom were armed, could now be called rebels. In an attempt to organize, they quickly formed the National Transition Council, or NTC, to act as a governing body. It was composed mostly of technocrats and former members of the regime. This was a necessity because Libya had never had political parties to speak of, or professional unions, or anything remotely like that except for the revolutionary councils. Anyone with any experience had come from the regime, but those that did had almost all been attached to the reformist movements that had acted under the surface in the past few years, and thus got quashed. For the first few weeks after the day rage, the rebels had steadily gained ground against the regime. But they were sorely lacking in weapons and military experience. Men who were protesters in mid-February were suddenly finding themselves on the front lines of an armed uprising, with no training, few weapons, and almost no equipment. By mid-March, Gaddafi was back on the offensive and regaining lost territory. Even when they were armed, the protesters were no match for their better equipped security services and military. By the 17th of March, exactly a month after the start of the uprising, Gaddafi was posed to retake Benghazi. That evening, the United Nations voted for a no-fly zone over Libya, which was supported by the British, French, Americans, and most significantly, the Arab League. Gaddafi could no longer hope for support from Arabs. Two days later, coalition aircraft started striking targets in Libya. In a rare show of reluctance to employ military force, the Obama administration noted that while it could lead initially, it wouldn't take the lead for the sustained campaign against Libya, and urged other nations to step up to the plate. By the end of the month, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization took control of the operations from the Americans. Also in mid-March, Gaddafi's forces laid siege to Misrata. Over the next two months, the rebels in the regime would fight for control of the city. Food shortages became the norm, and sniper and mortar attacks were a regular occurrence. For weeks, the two sides clashed, hoping to gain an advantage, before Gaddafi loyalist forces conceded defeat. The rebels had used innovative techniques to forge weapons, and with the support of NATO airstrikes, 
they were able to push Gaddafi's supporter out of the city. Tripoli was still firmly in regime hands, however. The brother leader paid hordes of people to parade through the streets, chanting songs in support of the regime, and security personnel were ever-present, making suspected rebels and rebel sympathizers disappear overnight. The residents of Libya's capital city largely stayed home, only venturing out to get essentials. Gasoline was in short supply, as were cash and those essential supplies. The city's electricity started to falter. Although he had control of the capital, the citizens were still suffering. There was cold comfort in controlling Tripoli, however. NATO airstrikes were gradually taking their toll on Gaddafi's forces. Surprisingly enough, President Obama stuck to the promise that America wouldn't leave forever, and American involvement in these NATO strikes was significantly reduced compared to other bombing campaigns. The no-fly zone neutralized Gaddafi's nascent air force before it could do much against the Benghazi-based rebellion. By the end of March, Gaddafi realized that if the airstrikes continued at their current pace, he wouldn't have much of a government left. Both Gaddafi and his son Saif al-Islam made overtures to the West about elections within a few months. They would be monitored by independent observers, guarantee that if Gaddafi lost, he would step down from power. But neither the Western nations nor the Libyan people had much appetite for Libya with Gaddafi still in its future. The West made it clear that Gaddafi had to go. The NTC was making progress in becoming the legitimate government of Libya as well. The technocrats that started up the NTC spoke a language that the West could both understand and agree with. By summertime, most nations involved in the conflict had proclaimed the NTC was the sole legitimate government of Libya, and the council was granted access to frozen Libyan assets. Furthermore, the NTC's weapons procurement efforts were starting to pay dividends. By August, the NTC had captured a number of important cities thanks to improved coordination with NATO forces in the air, and they effectively encircled Tripoli. Now the NTC and the coalition would attack the capital itself. Fighters were smuggled into the city to await the attack. For the second time, warplanes struck the Bab al-Azizia compound where Gaddafi lived. Ground forces eventually approached from the south, west, and east. Fighters even entered through Tripoli's harbor. Everyone expected a hell of a fight, but Gaddafi's forces largely just kind of melted away. Or defected to the rebels, including one of Gaddafi's own cousins. The rebels took the city, and the homes of loyalist leaders and of Gaddafi's family were raided, revealing almost unimaginable luxury. But the brother leader himself was nowhere to be found. What the rebels in NATO didn't know is that Gaddafi, at his son Mutasim's urging, had fled in a small convoy through the open desert to Sirte. It was such an obvious hiding place that the Gaddafis believed no one would even bother to look. Saif al-Islam fell to Bani Walid, the hometown of the Warfella tribe, who had long been ardent regime supporters. Saadi Gaddafi fled to Niger and was granted political asylum while Aisha, Mohammed, and Hannibal Gaddafi fled to Algeria. Gaddafi stayed in Sirte until the city was about to fall to rebels in October. Several high-ranking regime loyalists had holed up in a specific neighborhood there, 
and the rebels began pounding it with artillery and rocket attacks. The brother leader and his entourage were reduced to scavenging for food from abandoned apartments and houses, and Gaddafi occupied his time by reading the Quran and making frantic calls on a satellite phone. By the middle of the month, it was clear Sirta would fall soon. So the Gaddafi camp loaded up into a 40-car convoy on the morning of 20 October and left the city. Unfortunately for Gaddafi, NATO had spotted the large convoy and launched two strikes against it. One of these strikes damaged Gaddafi's vehicle and wounded him in the legs. Unable to go on, Gaddafi and some loyal companions decided to hide in two large drainage pipes that ran under the road. It wasn't long until rebel forces showed up at the scene and dragged a bewildered Gaddafi from his hiding place. His last moments are captured on video where he can be seen asking, What did I do to you? while caked in sand and blood. While some present called for calm and to arrest Gaddafi, the mob had to be satiated. Gaddafi was punched several times before being shot twice. His son Mutasim was also captured, only to be summarily executed. Muammar Gaddafi, who rose up from poverty to rule a nation for 42 years, met his end in a ditch not far from where he was born. His body was dragged through Sirta before being placed in a meat locker in Misrata. Although the NTC lobbied to have his body handed to them for burial, the citizens of Misrata refused and soon lines formed to see their brother leader's body inside the freezer. He was eventually interred in an unmarked grave in the desert. Next time on Dictatorum, we'll discuss some of the aftermath of the colonel's downfall, which is still being felt today as Libya has been an endless civil war since the February uprising. Also, we'll take a look at some of Gaddafi's eccentricities and note some of the stuff that made him such a weird character.